Hi, I'm Tim Marlowe, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Hi, good evening. Thank you very much, Gonzalo, and thanks, thank you for inviting me here to chair this discussion, which promises to get at some, some very big issues. The event tonight and the exhibit that is opening as, um, is framed around quite a, quite a meaty question. What does it mean to be human in today's cities? And um, so we've got these two, these two key words, the human and the urban, and they seem relatively straightforward at first, but they are, um, I would argue that they're both quite complex, contested propositions that get at some major political questions today. Um, questions such as how is technological change transforming everyday life? Is it possible to make cities more humane? What determines the direction of social change and can it be democratized? These questions are far from abstract academic inquiries. These questions are posed daily in our urbanizing world and hopefully tonight we can collectively generate some fresh approaches to them. The, historically, the relationship between being human and being urban is quite a tricky one. On the one hand, there's a long tradition of seeing the city as antithetical to something genuinely human, um, of seeing urban environments as fundamentally alienating, inhuman, and inhumane. So think of, of portrayals of Victorian London by Dickens or Henry Mayhew. Um, think of almost every sci-fi dystopia or think of contemporary stories, especially written by outsiders, of, sort of travels through um, informal neighborhoods and, and districts today. The city here is imagined as corrosive, unnatural, and essentially dehumanizing. The classic social science version of this idea is found in an essay uh, from 1903, a famous essay by the sociologist Georg Zimmel. Um, this essay is called The Metropolis and Mental Life, and he essentially argues that the, the sensory onslaught that you encounter within cities and the hyper-commodified market economy blunts the minds of city dwellers and makes them indifferent to the distinctiveness of things. And so from this perspective, um, it, the urban and the human don't mix very well. Of course, there's also a competing tradition that sees cities as the places where humans can be most fully human where truly novel things can be created and where more humane forms of life can be lived. And I mean, this view can be traced back to ancient times. If you read Pericles' funeral oration in Thucydides, you'll see a version of it. Um, you see many different versions of this today. I and mean, some of my favorite come from um, the philosopher Iris Marin Young, who argued that city life um, contains within it the as yet unrealized ideal of, quote, openness to unassimilated otherness. Um, as well, the geographer David Harvey thinks that it's possible to, quote, change ourselves by changing the city. And I think this is quite, this is quite an inspiring idea. Uh, so from this perspective, rather than being the place where humans are somehow denatured, um, instead, the urban environment is seen as a second nature, as, as the only world made by humans for humans. Of course, if you think about this long enough, it, it's clear that both of these perspectives can be true at the same time. They reflect different historical opportunities as well as different social experiences. 
In an unequal urban society, some people do experience the city as a resource for actualizing their personal ambitions and political projects. And other people do indeed experience the city as a dehumanizing environment. Um, and I think it's, it's best to understand this dehumanization and, and the promise of rehumanization in concrete political ways. So I think some people experience the city as dehumanizing not because of modern design or because of the pace of technological change, but because of the difficulty of paying the rent, uh, because of the, the, the recent history of dismantling redistributive institutions, and, and, and because of the struggle to get by um, precarious work, especially for working class and poor people. So I want to insist um, that we pose this question of being human in today's cities in political terms. So this means always being aware of the dimension of power and inequality. So who, who counts as human? Whose perspective is universalized to produce such a category? And are our inherited ideas about humanity, about being human, appropriate for contemporary cities and the contemporary world? Furthermore, you can't talk about technological change um, or, or urban change without asking who's driving it, who's designing it, for which users, produced by whose exploited labor, mined in whose communities, producing data that's amalgamated to further whose goals, foreclosing what alternative possibilities. So I'd argue that a lot of the technologically enhanced urbanisms that are promoted today are essentially elitist projects that seek to optimize the profits of big technology firms from smart cities to urban command centers to wired sidewalks and datafied bodies, we see the technological transformation of urban life being driven by digital monopoly capitalists who may speak the language of innovation and even revolution, but who seek to conserve the unequal social order rather than changing it. At the same time, I think that there still is a sense in which we can transform ourselves by transforming the city. City dwellers across the planet today are producing new social movements, new forms of solidarity, and indeed new forms and usages of technology, culture, and communication. As much as we live in an era when urban life is becoming exclusionary and precarious, we also live in an era of urban insurrection. Urban space um, can, can, can almost be seen as a resource that can be hoarded or it can be shared. And whenever new collectivities start to share it and use it in new ways, there's always transformative potential. So ultimately, these questions about being human and being urban are, are complex and inescapably political questions, but they're also open questions. So I'm excited to, um, to be part of this conversation where we get into these open questions in more depth tonight. Um, so let's, uh, let, let's move on and, and hear from our two speakers. So our first speaker is Kate Rayworth. Kate is, as you have now heard, a self-described renegade economist, um, who's, which is the best kind of economist, whose research focuses on the unique social and ecological challenges of the 21st century. She is Senior Visiting Research Associate at Oxford University's Environmental Change Institute, a Senior Associate of the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, and author of Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. So now I'll turn the floor over to Kate. Thank you. Thank you very much, David. 
And I just, like probably many people in this room, have just had a wonderful quick look in the Dark Matter Laboratory's new exhibit, and it was fantastic. So my mind is spinning with these wonderful new ideas, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So, yes, I'm going to talk about donuts. Let me give you the health warning. Don't eat donuts, okay? They're not good for us. I'm going to introduce you to the one donut that might actually turn out to be good for us. And I'm also going to talk about economics, because that's my own disciplinary background and training. And I love the title of this theme of invisible landscapes, because what I'm fascinated by is the invisible landscape in the back of our minds that is created there by economic framing that tells us who we are and how we interact and what progress looks like. And I realize that donut economics is, in fact, my attempt to take on the invisible landscape and, and to make it visible and therefore remove it and rewrite it and create one that's actually fit for our times. So economics departments, I think this is a place where the mother tongue of public policy, that economic framing, is iterated again and again. It's October. This is the month in which the universities of the world are filled with the new students who are learning economics, and they're sitting in the first classes, the ones that go deepest because they present us with the, the most profound frames that tell us what the economy is and who we are. And I want to just show you a little bit of what I think is the invisible mindset set by 20th century economics. So it starts with the at atomized human, rational economic man. He's never actually depicted in the textbook, so I decided to draw him. I thought he deserved a portrait. <laughs> and he'd have to look a bit like this. He would, of course, be a man. And he's standing alone. He's got money in his hand, ego in his heart, a calculator in his head, and nature at his feet. And he hates work, he loves luxury, and he knows the price of everything. These are the traits that were written into the character such that he could be modeled and aggregated and turned into a scaled-up version of apparently this is how the economy is going to act. And this model goes deep. Economic students from year one to year two to year three say over time that they more value the traits of self-interest and competition, and they give less value to collaboration or compassion. So the model that we show ourselves of ourselves actually shapes who we become. There's a huge responsibility to any discipline that claims to tell us who we are because it shapes who we actually become. Rational economic man, in the economic world, we meet other human beings in the space of the market. We are either labor or consumer, and we interface through the price mechanism. And thirdly, the shape of progress, it's never drawn, a bit like rational economic man. It's never actually drawn, but it's an implicit shape of an ever-rising line of growth ever accumulating, ever rising, this word growth, which is so powerfully at the heart of every political narrative. These, I think, are the little triptych of 20th century economics. That is the invisible landscape in the back of our minds. It so profoundly shapes who we think we are and the economic person that then comes to the city. So I've been presenting the ideas of donut economics for about a year and a half, and I'm fascinated and delighted when I see people take it up and start making it their own. And I want to introduce you to the donut so that I can then take you on that journey of where it goes. The one donut that turns out to be good for us. I present this as a compass for human prosperity in the 21st century. So imagine humanity's use of resources radiating out from the center of that picture so that the hole in the middle of that space is a space where people are in shortfall, falling short on the resources they need to meet their claims to health, education, housing, water, food, energy, connection with others, gender equality, political voice. These I've crowdsourced from the Sustainable Development Goals. 
They're the 12 social priorities that all the world's governments have already agreed that every person has a claim to. So we want to get everybody out of that hole into the green ring itself over a social foundation of well-being. But there's another side, the outer ring. We cannot overshoot that outer ring because there we begin to put so much pressure on this unique, living, delicately balanced planet that we begin to kick our planet out of kilter and we cause climate breakdown. We acidify the oceans, we strip the soil from the land. We create extreme levels of biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse. These nine dimensions around the outside are known as the nine planetary boundaries, first recognized by Earth system scientists around a decade ago. They believe these are the nine life-supporting systems that keep Earth <laughs> in the home sweet home space she's been in for the last 11,000 years. So when you put these together, the simplest way I can say it is that the aim is to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. And already it changes, this, this goal of human prosperity, it changes what it is to be human because to be human is not merely to meet our needs for water and food and education and health and shelter, those basic means of sustenance. It's also to know that our bodily health is profoundly connected to planetary health. The human body and the planetary body depend upon one another for that health. And so it's a massive expansion of our recognition of what human prosperity means. Those planetary boundaries, it's not a trade-off of development or the environment. The living planet is part of our own bodily health. So I offer this as a compass. And if this is the compass, where are we today? It's not an easy picture to look at. All that red shows you the extent to which globally either people are falling short on their essential needs, like here on food, this is 11% of the way to the middle of the circle because 11% of people worldwide don't have enough food to eat every day. And you can see on every one of those social dimensions, there are people in countries rich and poor who are falling short on the essentials of life. But we've already simultaneously overshot at least four of these planetary boundaries on climate change, on excessive fertilizer use, biodiversity loss, and converting too much of Earth's surface for human use, for agriculture, for cities, for highways. So our generational challenge is like none that preceded us because we need to eliminate that deprivation so that every human can lead a life of dignity and opportunity. But for the first time in human history, we realize we have to do it while coming back within planetary boundaries. In the past, we did it by pushing pressure on the planet. Now we need to reverse that relationship and it's unprecedented. Last century's economists never saw this. So why would we think their economic theories would be fit for taking on its challenges? Last century's politicians never saw this dilemma. Their policies aren't up for the challenge. Last century's business leaders never saw this. Their business models and what it means to be in business needs reinventing. And of course, last, last century's urban designers never saw this. And this is, again, a new urban challenge for what it means to create cities that enable our bodily health and the planetary health both to thrive. Well, I'm delighted when people send me pictures like this on Twitter saying, we're holding a workshop. We're trying to figure out here in Berlin or elsewhere in South Africa or in Sweden, what would it mean for our city to be a donut city where this is a place where we meet the needs of all within the means of the planet? And that's exactly the kind of conversation that delights me that's happening. We don't yet know the answer. And I think for me, to this evening is part of exploring that answer. So I start in economics, economics meaning household management, and cities are indeed a place where our households are managed. 
hopefully in the interests of all their inhabitants. I, but I start here, not where mainstream economics starts with the supply and demand of the market, but saying the economy, and let's think of a city economy, economy is, is embedded in society, a subset of social act, action. Economic activity is a social construct and it's a subset of wider social relationships embedded in the living world, drawing in materials and matter, spewing out waste and pollution, bathed in this river, constant river of solar energy. But look inside the economy. It's not just the market where 20th century economics loves to begin, nor is it the state. That was a 20th century boxing match ideologically between the US and the USSR. And in that boxing match, we lost sight of two other fundamental forms of provisioning, the household, where we all begin every day, raising our children, caring for our partners, ourselves, our parents, that space of unpaid caring work, but also the commons, where communities get together, whether it's on the corner of their neighborhood block to create a garden, or via Wikipedia, or Linux on the World Wide Web to create digital commons. And of course, the digital commons make understanding the commons crucial if you want to know about the dynamism of the 21st century economy. So I begin here with this idea of the embedded economy, dependent upon these many flows. How can cities then help bring us into this space? I want to propose two design principles that I see running throughout businesses, throughout urban design, throughout government policy that I think are going to be key to helping meet the needs of all but within the means of the planet, to overcome the extremes of inequality and the degradation that are embedded behind this picture. And they are to be distributive and regenerative by design. So I'm going to talk a little bit about each of those. Start with regenerative design. This is the degenerative, linear 20th century economy. And I love to play with a bit of hosepipe whenever I can. So here's a bit of hosepipe, right? This is the 20th century economy. We take Earth's materials, stick them in a pipe, energy, matter. We make stuff we want. We use it for a while, often only once, and we throw it away. And that's the linear, degrading economy that we need, of course, to close the loop, to bend it round so that resources are never used up, they're used again and again. Separating resources into the biological side, that's nature's cycle of decomposition and recreating, that's life. But also the technical materials, like this clicker, like this chair, the floor, all of the human-made materials in this room should be part of a cyclical loop of reuse. It needs to be an economy, of course, that runs on sunlight. There's no coincidence. This is a, round, a yellow circle. And what gives me energy and hope is that over 100 cities worldwide today generate more than 70% of their electricity from sun, wind, waves, and geothermal in countries that we think of as rich and poor. And this is growing extremely fast. The number of cities has doubled just since, since 2015. So renewable energy works can be done. And of course, cities are leading and the way, but also creating circular cities. So here's a circular city plan from Glasgow, looking at how, from the food industry, bakery, meat and fish, beer and spirits, how those resources, the, the waste from one process can become food for the next, creating that loop that needs to be made. And of course, cities lend themselves as a fantastic scale for starting to do this. But this is about humans creating loops of the way we use resources. And one of the things that I think to be human and connecting us, our bodily health to planetary health, I want to turn to the work of Janine Benyus, who is a great inspiration for me. She's a leading thinker in biomimicry. And whenever she's asked to bring the principles of biomimicry to a city, the first thing she'll say is, take me to the wildland next door. So if it was New York City, take me to the Adirondacks. She'll literally measure out 
a hectare of the land there, the ecosystem that's functioning in it is as natural a state as it can be. And she'll measure the ecological performance standards of that hectare of land. So how much does this hectare of land clean the air? How much groundwater does it store after a storm? How much carbon dioxide is it sequestering? How much biodiversity does it house? How much cooling does it provide? How much soil does it build? How does it handle flood water? And we take these as the ecological performance standards that our cities should match or exceed. I find that a phenomenally exciting, ambitious, but fundamentally, ultimately obvious standard for human thriving with our, our own bodies, with the planetary body, to enable our cities to match or exceed the ecological standards of the wild land next door. And, and I'd love to see how that's going to be embedded more and more in urban design. A couple of places she's also sometimes mentioned, this building in New York takes in polluted air, filters the air for the inhabitants of the building, but then puts it out, back out into the city three times cleaner than it was. So it's literally helping like a lung for the city, cleaning the air of the city. Or this hotel in Singapore with these wonderful eco gardens built into its terrain. But they're quite hard landscapes. And you can't see the people. What, of course, are far more compelling to us are these ones where the New York High Line or this space in Antwerp, where you can feel the presence of people. And it's that interaction of people and the ecosystem, the interaction of the planetary body and the human body that somehow makes us, we just want to be there already, right? You, want, you just want to be there and part of that interaction with the more than human nature. What about distributive design? Let me pull away from the regenerative and add in now the distributive. And this I find the most exciting area because the challenges we face are huge. And yet for the first time in human history, some of the core technologies are on our side to enable us to create far more distributive economies than have been created in the past. And I, this is my favorite distributive toy. So let me tell you how, well, how I think of this. So energy, think of energy systems in the 20th century. You have you know, oil rig, a big piece of investment bringing together a lot of centralized capital into one place. You have a coal mine, you have a gas pipeline. But of course, in the 21st century, it's a network. Because solar energy is decentralized and small scale and affordable, it can be a panel on the roof of every home, community center, school, hospital. It can be a, a, a wind turbine dotted across the landscape or the sea. The, the renewable energy network looks like this from space. And it transforms not just where and how energy is produced, but who owns the capacity to produce energy. The ownership to generate electricity can exist at the individual household level for the first time. It's unprecedented that technology should enable us to be distributive of the sources of wealth creation. Add to that communication, 20th century, you had every phone call going through a centralized computer, uh, sorry, a, an operator dashboard. 21st century, we've all got a node of this system in every pocket. Every pocket in this room is carrying a node of the network. Unprecedented opportunity. And then third, add to that, not a technological design, but an institutional design about intellectual property rights. Patents and copyrights, the heart of 20th century knowledge, ownership, and corporate control of knowledge. And of course, 21st century, we've got the Creative Commons licensing. And these beautiful array of licenses which give the specificity that people need to be able to share their ideas in the way that fit each of those ideas so that we have a Creative Commons not only of energy, not only of communication, but then of knowledge. And put these together, and you start to get things like fab labs, a place of 
decentralized networked production. And this is where it gets really exciting, because if you've got fab labs dotted around the world, then atoms, which are heavy, can stay local. We don't need to ship atoms around the world. Atoms stay local, and bits which are light travel. People talk about it as cosmo-local production. We have got fab labs popping up all over the world, and their growth rate is on an extraordinary exponential curve. So what does the future of global production look like when we reimagine it with fab labs and local production community centers at the heart of local atoms, global bits traveling? I, I find this mind-blowingly exciting for the future of every city because it relocalizes both the human creativity, right? That looks like a really fun place to be. You want to be there. But it also relocalizes manufacturing and the, the homo faber in all of us. We need those nodes in the network, not just as fab labs, but actually places where communities can meet, places where nodes can create. And actually, since we're here in Piccadilly, I mean, I just came past Eros. Eros is like London's ever beacon node. People just go to Eros because they, they know there will be people there. And there's always someone busking and someone having a laugh. It, it's a human node it's like a beacon calling us here in paris a place called passage 56 just a gap between two blocks but the local residents got hold of the right to to use it and they turned it into this beautiful community space you just want to be there it's a node in a network the commons which are ever resurgent finding places between buildings to begin reconnecting us as societies making these nodes and making the commons an irresistible form of organizing in the 21st century. Here's a repair cafe and a makerspace like a fab lab. And these kinds of nodes are, of course, invaluable to creating spaces where people feel they belong in new kinds of networks in the city. So I want to come back to that diagram I showed you. I had the economy with the market and the state, the household and the commons. And 20th century economics really told us we were this character, this rational economic man. We introduced as actors through the market, which gives us the choice of being consumer or producer or investor or debtor. But then when we have this much richer understanding of the economy and these many different economic spaces that are governed by different principles, then the story gets much more interesting. It goes from this single me to the me within a we. Within the state, we can be citizen, resident, service user, voter, and lobbyist and protester and demonstrator. In the household, we're parent, partner, friend, and neighbor. And in the commons, this place that's been so neglected, we were told that the commons was a tragedy. Actually, thanks to Eleanor Ostrom's research and thanks to the digital commons, it's turning out to be a pretty exciting triumph. In the commons, we can be co-creators, sharers, repairers, and stewards. Stewards, whether it's of human-made resources or stewards of the living body of which our bodies are a part. And you see so many people who find those spaces and feel great purpose in being part of that connection. So I want to end. I've talked about the connection between the human body and the planetary body. I think that's a very 21st century part of being human. Rediscovering that we're not merely rational economic man, but we have these many identities, even within the economic sphere. And then I want to end thinking about the idea from the 20th century that progress has this ever-rising line of growth. Growth, it's a deeply human experience. We watch our children grow. 
Right? The first thing a child does, and we clap when they do it, they learn to crawl forward and they pull themselves up. They literally follow the shape of this curve. That's early progress in a child's life. My kids, I have 10-year-old twins, their feet are growing insanely fast, right? It's incredibly expensive. But at some point, their feet will stop growing. So growth is a wonderful, healthy phase of life. We love to see our children grow. We love to see the plants in our gardens grow. But this particular growth curve is a very economic construct of what growth should look like. Because if you look to nature, of which we are a part, this, this is nature's growth curve. Things grow, but then they grow up. And then they mature. And it's only by doing so that they can thrive. Growth is a stage of thriving. But anything that tries to grow without end cannot thrive. Things in nature that try to grow without cease, they destroy the systems on which they depend. Within our own bodies, we recognize that as cancer. We deeply understand that when something tries to grow within a healthy living whole, and it tries to grow forever, we need to stop that because it's a threat to the health of the whole. And yet we've created economies that, at the heart of the design, financially, politically, and socially expect never-ending increase. And to me, this is the existential 21st century question. To be human, is to grow and grow up and mature and ultimately to die and to be recycled, our atoms. And I loved in, in the exhibition that the atoms in us are part of the buildings and our ancestors and we're embedded. We are, of course, each of us a cycle of life and embedded in a, in a long history and ancestral cycles. But why would we imagine that our economies will be the one system that would somehow buck nature's trend? And I think the 21st century economic existential question is what does it take to make economies that grow and grow up and enable us to thrive without having this structural addiction to growth rooted at the heart of the financial, political, and social systems? It's going to be a, quite a journey, and I'm, I'm fascinated to see how this story is already evolving. And the, the new places that these conversations are being invited, I'm being invited into the European Parliament, into governments, into big business, into investment funds. They say, come, come and tell that story. It's a, bit, it's a bit out there, but come and tell us. We <laughs> want to hear it now. And that wasn't, that wasn't even countenanced a decade ago. So I offer that as a compass for 21st century thriving, the human health, the bodily health within the planetary bodily health, a re-understanding of our deep interconnections with our planetary home. That's what our prosperity is. What does it take to make a city that brings us home here? The 20th century, embedded in our invisible landscape in the back of our minds, atomized man. The market is the place where we interconnect and the shape of progress is endless growth. And I want to replace those with who we are is, of course, the most social of all mammals. We are more social than any other mammal especially when it comes to collaborating with those beyond our next of kin. So the we instead of the me. And the places where we collaborate, even within the limited sphere of the economy, is not just the market, but it's the state and the household and the commons. And it's often in the household and the commons that we get the greatest joy of being, engaging and interacting. And the shape of human progress has to be part of nature's cycles because we are of them. So how do we recognize that the economy one day must grow up and come to thrive. If you're interested in these questions and you want to know more about donor economics, I invite you to watch some of these animations. I had the privilege of working with some brilliant stop-motion animators. You can see they're silly, irreverent, playful, funny, 
We have to make economics accessible to a far wider community. And if you want to join an online discussion, you are most welcome to join it here. But really, what matters right now is the discussion we're going to have in this room. And I'm very much looking forward to hearing what Indy has to say and turning it into a conversation. Thank you very much indeed. Wow, thank you, Kate. That was, that, there was a lot there. Um, that, that, that was great. And, and now we're going to add another voice on all these issues, um, which is our second speaker, Indy Johar, who is an architect, founder of Dark Matter Laboratories, founding director of Architecture Zero Zero, and co-founder of Impact Hub Birmingham and Open Systems Lab. He's senior innovation associate with the Young Foundation and visiting professor of architecture at the University of Sheffield. So I'll now turn the floor over to Indy. Thank you. First, let me start by saying I'm actually a co-founder in pretty much everywhere. And nothing I've done is done by myself, but with many, many great people. Uh, start there. Um, secondly, I want to start by saying it's an incredible privilege and an honor, and I'd like to thank Kate and her team for actually hosting this conversation here. Um, and I think it's really important that in this conversation that we bring the voice of economics and the voice of the invisible structures of society as well as actually the expressions of how we create that society in material form. So it's an incredible privilege and honor to be in this space and to be hosted for these sort of conversations. Because I think if we're gonna imagine the kind of the cities and the place of tomorrow, we have to actually reimagine the philosophy of understanding these environments in different ways. So let me start by there. Um, and I'm really looking forward to the conversation, and Kate is incredibly difficult to follow because you're a great speaker, and uh, it's an incredibly uh, privilege to be here, incredibly good privilege. So I suppose where I want to start this conversation, and we're probably recircling conversation like one of these conversations uh, where we go through these kind of three loops. And one of the things we wanted to talk about was actually kind of reimagining what it means to be human to reimagine what it means to be in the city. And I think David did a very good analysis of looking at that conversation. But actually, it's also just having a moment to think about it. And if you look at the science of being human, it actually challenges much of the doctrine that we've grown up in. The doctrine of us as an individual. The doctrine of us as kind of the word meritocracy, which was kind of created by people like Michael Young, not as a, as a great idea, as, an, as a parody of what we think. And when you start to look at this stuff, firstly, you have to recognize that even when we talk about our physical body, well, actually, our physical body is a multitude of organisms. Less than 50% of us is human DNA. We live in perfect symbiosis with a much larger ecosystem that keeps us healthy and well. And when it goes out of kilter, we go out of kilter. When you even think about your cognitive brain patterns, actually, my cognitive brain patterns aren't just a product of me, but actually, they're a social product. So when your mum used to say, your friends influence who you are, she was right. <laughs> right? And the science is telling us this already. And when you look at this, when you realize that actually, we, in our isolation and in our kind of, you know, Kate perfectly, sorry, the kind of the individualization, well, actually, the impacts of that isolation is equivalent to 15 cigarettes a day. 
So the impacts of loneliness is actually physically killing us as much as 15 cigarettes a day. And you start to think, well, what does that really mean? And then you start to really think about it that actually the impacts as a result of epigenetics, well, we know the impacts of poverty two generations, at least two generations prior to me, actually influence me. So we know the effects of poverty transit, transmit two generations down the line. So this, we are not isolated either in space or in time. Actually, we're interdependent. And we've become used to a caricature understanding of the world of me as an individual. And that me or that object worldview was a brilliant worldview for about 300 years or 400 years. That Newtonian Enlightenment worldview of seeing the world through objects allowed us to operate in an infinite world. In a relatively infinite world, we saw the things by putting them in vitro, to put them in glass and treat it as an object, to get rid of the complexity, to say this is an infinite, uh, this is a finite reality. But when you go, in, go into the reality of it, and I don't even want to talk about quantum physics, actually, oh, the world messes, you know? I, I hope you've heard of the brilliant experiment where they took a photon and split it and put the photons, uh, split photon 16 miles apart. They turned one end of this photon and the other one turned automatically. And they talk about that being the great entanglement. Actually, the great entanglement of everything. So the conception of us and the conception of the object and the conception of the individual is a convenient conception. It is a, a way, a lens of seeing the world, a useful lens that perhaps I would like to propose and we have been proposing has come to the end of its term. Because as Kate's beautiful diagram realized, illustrated was actually we no longer our impacts no longer just filter away into the endless abyss of relatively infinite world. Our impacts are now feedbacking back into us. We can no longer close our eyes to the world that we live in and thereby the feedbacks that they drive. And in that conversation, I think there's a presumption and I kind of, I would say an exploration required. And I don't even want to say that we know what the definitiveness here is an explanation of what does it mean to be human in this idea of interdependency. And what does it mean? And we use the term we are they because in the act of observing the other person, we have to recognize even the act of observation, which divides us to see the other is an illusion. We are actually fundamentally interdependent. And I think that interdependence is philosophically and structurally deeply challenging. And we'll go into that conversation. And the word they, some of you will remember in formal English terms, when your grandparents turned up, you would call them they. It was a, it was a reference. It was a, it was a way of seeing the world in the we, right? It's epistemological roots go all the back to the notion of we and then that landscape. So the they. So this frames a conversation or outlines a conversation about the challenge of individuality. And there's a brilliant piece of ethnographic work which was done in the 70s, which looked at taking a child born in the West and showing them a painting. And if you showed them the painting, the child would say, I see a vase. And if you asked them again and again, they would say they described the context. The same painting of shown to a child born in, in, the, uh, in the East would actually they would describe the context first. And then if you ask them again, they would describe the object. So the way we see the world is fundamentally structured by our culture and in a way how we describe our environment. And obviously this famous quote, which has been iterated in many ways, we shape our buildings and thereafter they shape us, this interdependency is obviously 
pretty real, and it also applies to recently updated by Dot Everyone into how we shape our technology, and it reinvents, uh, shapes, shapes us afterwards. So, in this conversation with the new human, how do we imagine the new city? And the reason we were we got excited about this exhibition was we personally become quite tired about these kind of glorified object images of cities with the kind of extreme buildings on one side with sort of kooky extreme sports everywhere, glass tower box, and going, this is the future. It was like, really? Is, the, is that the future? Because I think it's going to be far more complicated than that. And when you start to look at that, and you start to say, well, hold it. And in a way, picking up very, uh, very similarly to what David said, we have always kind of, in a way, created narratives. These are allegories. Whether it's Vitruvian man, and I, the man is specifically put back, we took it out and said, no, that was actually the construct of how they saw the city. And what you say is the objectification of the body was actually a way of seeing the world. Simultaneously, Corb's modular man, which was the understanding of actually understanding the human metrics and the human perfect human idea, again manifested in a machine notion of the world itself, although a little bit more eloquently than usually portrayed. And the question starts to ask us, if we are no longer a man, but we are they, how do we reimagine the city? And thereby opens up some profound questions about what does justice look like and other things on that process. So we can see the visions of the city that have gone with these realities. What is the 22nd second century city in that reality? And in a way to enter this conversation, it would surprise no one for, so for me to say, put up a pencil. And the way we want to enter this conversation as an architect, the pencil is interesting because I'd like to argue that the pencil, it takes a civilization to build a pencil. That simple thing is an act of civilization. The graphite that has to be mined, the wood that has to be chopped, that metal that is an alloy of multiple metals that has to be mined, put together, forged, the rubber at the end of it. So that simple act of the pencil is actually a construct of civilization. And when we hold it with reverence or irreverence, usually, as a consumable, we actually hold a tip and the, and the fusing of civilization. Yet our ability, our consciousness, to be aware of that interdependency is, I think, one of the big challenges that we face. How to become deeply conscious that we hold a tip of civilization. And in its, all its glory, the pencil relies on this. The simplicity of a pencil. It relies on all the world that Kate laid out beautifully, trade economics, commodities, markets, all of that stuff comes together to create that simple thing. And in a way, buildings are knots of these things, how these things come together. There are a knot of matter, energy, services, contracts, and all their beautiful forms, but also what they also bring together is an ability to challenge at the level of complexity the failure to manage that complexity. I won't necessarily talk about buildings right now because I think there's a, there's a deeply sensitive conversation that we can probably have, have at the table of a building not so far from here. But you can also talk about our ability to no longer manage complexity in the way that we've been doing, um, whether it's, uh, I'll use the example of strawberries. So uh, not so far from here, a group of doctors fell ill with, I think it's hepatitis B, after having strawberries for their, uh, for their desserts. And the reason was, Actually, the strawberries were being farmed in, in Scotland, and the people being paid for those strawberries were paid by weight. 
And as a result, it was in those centres because it was so badly paid, they were urinating on the strawberries. And as a result, it went all the way down the chain to actually doctors not so far from here. So you had one impact of incentives at one end of the chain impacting the reality of other people's lives. And why I bring that up, in a complex world, how do we drive, how do we, in the complexity of even the simple pencil, increasingly what we see as our ability to actually, the failure of that complexity is manifesting in many ways around us. And we won't, we'll perhaps bring that up in reality. All the way through to whether it's air pollution. So we know, for example, we all spend 92% of our time inside, in buildings. And in that 92% of that time, actually the impact of carbon dioxide levels, which are actually pretty much rising here, uh, what you'll see is your cognitive performance will drop like a stone. Right? So we know that. Here, what we're saying is actually the impact of growing air pollution in London has that much impact on actually the productivity and the value of people and how they, how they produce stuff. Real stuff. Let alone it is literally killing people. Haven't even referred to that. So into that reality, what I want to put forward is technologies allowing us to look and relook at this complexity. Where this complexity has to be done in the way that we've been doing it historically for the last 20th century, where the complexity has been a burden, perhaps there's a different way to look at this stuff. And the thesis we want to put forward is a next generation of thinking of reimagination of bureaucracy. So the thesis I want to put forward is the revolution that we're facing is a revolution of bureaucracy. And our vision of bureaucracy, which was built probably at the time of the Kaiser and the modern state was constructed, actually is being reinvented by technology. Uber is not actually, didn't get rid of the, didn't get rid of the, car, uh, the taxi drivers. What it really got rid of was the cab office. It got, got re-disintermediated the, the cab office the bureaucracy, the management of bureaucracy. And I think there's something smart going on, challenging in the nature of how we reimagine that technology to offer different opportunities. And at the same time, the thesis is how we reimagine rules of governance. Our notion of governance has been locked into an object-orientated world. What does governance look like in the 21st century world when we recognize those linked realities, when we recognize that air the, the quality of air in this room is actually genuinely impacting the performance of everyone here. When you recognize that when you live, when you work in a building, so most hot desking scenarios are actually more about optimizing the building, not optimizing you. It's entirely about optimizing the use of the building. What would a building look like if it was there to optimize you? And even in basic economic terms, and Kate can do much better than I can, we know buildings are, and David Saxby, my, one of my co-founders at Zero Zero, will point out, buildings are less than 10% of the cost of an organization. But what is the value? We just talked about some of that stuff. So into this reality, how do we reimagine re the rules of governance and the rules of interrelationship? And then what happens when you think about it from this lens? Healthcare costs from poor quality housing. Is housing about housing, or is it actually an engine of well-being? How do we even reimagine this reality? And why that's important is suddenly you're starting to see linked worlds, worlds that link together, where costs, whether it's from poor housing, actually can be felt, fed by the, uh, felt by the NHS, or whether it's by the health system around, oh, the education system, or 
and technology, whether, and I'm not talking computer stuff, Million Dollar Blocks in 2001, a brilliant project in Chicago, which looked at urban blocks, which are costing the state a million dollars in reoffending rates. In the UK, right, if you have a young offender's prison, the most extreme young offender's prison, costs 238,000 pounds a year to put someone in a, a young offender's prison. 238,000 pounds. Eton is about 65. 78,000 pounds to put someone in prison. Eton is about 65. Right? I think it's just really interesting for us to just recognize that. Someone who's homeless in the UK costs about 38,000 pounds to the state, and it's entirely in A&E costs and other issues. Health related, you've got 38,000 pounds. It is cheaper to give them a home. Although, let's recognize that the issue is just not the home. It's also actually other support services. But the premise stands, and we know there are parts of, uh, parts, of the UK, uh, parts of Europe that are looking at that. So when you start to change the frames of accounting, you can start to change what we think the solutions are. Because suddenly we're starting to reimagine a different world. The house is not a commodity, but house is linked to your well-being and your flourishing, and opens up a different way of looking at the notion of where, how we invest and how we link this stuff. And this is a diagram that I've always loved that in the act of design, we often design to the cost of the building. Perhaps sometimes the cost of operations, if it's a PFI, and architects hate PFI, but in a way, you would design costs to the notion of what it costs to operate that building as a gearage of about 1 to 15. But the costs to delivering against that mission, the human capital is 1 to 80. And then if you multiply that to the local economic multiplier or the local multiplier, it's profoundly larger. So what are we designing to? Often we're designing to this. We're never designing to that. And the premise I want to give you is what happens when you ask, when you say we no longer want to design a prison by putting people away, we want to design a prison which is about rehabilitation of people. Would you actually even design these cells? And actually the accounting of that is already there. The accounting is not tomorrow, Tomorrowland. It's actually starting to already be there. Would the result be different? Well, maybe. There's a brilliant ashram prison that's been trialed in India, surprisingly, where actually you go in and you have 30 days of silence. And even the wardens partake in that 30 days of silence. And its purpose, it has less than 3% reoffending rate. It is a place of healing. It is not meant as a place of penalties. It's a place of actually rehabilitation and healing. How do you reimagine the institutions that we have around us, actually which are fundamentally different? Because so there we are not designing objects, we're designing to the outcome. And in a way, I think there's something profound possible with not just technology as a piece of, piece of maths or a piece of code. I mean technology in its broadest sense when we move away from the notion of actually just designing objects to perhaps designing around the outcomes and outcomes that people want and outcomes that people can offer. So what does design and designers look like when you move into this world, when you move from object to outcome? And it asks profound questions when technology can allow us to look at the lifetime cost of things, to look at the lifetime energy cycle of things. We could do this historically. One of the buildings I was part of uh, was able to look at the maintenance cost of air conditioning and basically say it was cheaper to do acoustically attenuated windows as opposed to actually putting air conditioning in because the maintenance cost was going to be more expensive than very expensive capital windows. So that accounting frame is, allows us to reimagine design. Now, what happens when you can do that at rapid rates? What happens when we can do that at the scale where the cost of that is virtually near zero? 
What happens, as Kate rightly said, and this is one of our, uh, Alistair Parvin, perhaps he's here, from Zero Zero, uh, part of Zero Zero ecosystem, has been looking at the WikiHouse. When you decentralize design, when you, technology allows you to actually change the nature of production and distribute it around the world, as Kate was beautifully uh, explaining. But at the center of that is another part of design. In order to decentralize stuff, you also have to decentralize and distribute, change the idea of even warranties. How do you actually have aggregative warranties which allow for decentralized quality assurance, which brings the whole thing together? And that is what technology allows us. It is no longer possible, the issue is no longer just a distribution of design, it is the distribution of that dark matter that sits behind the story. And technology is now making that near cost zero. Or even the question of property rights. So many of you will own a home here. But here's something that's always blown my mind. If I took my home and I put it in the middle of Nova Scotia, it's worth next to nothing. Yet somehow, the physical home is a depreciating asset. It's an asset that takes time, money to repair. The land is next to worthless, I hope so, because if it's built on agricultural grade land, that is a real shame. Um, so where's the value of the house? And if we were sitting here, we'd say, you know, if this is a real estate show, it'd be location, location, location. What does that really mean? Well, what it really means is the monopolistic rights of that land to schools, to labor markets, to transportation, to parks. It's the access that you're buying. So when your house has gone up in value, what's actually gone up in value? Agricultural grade land has gone up a little bit, no doubt. What's really gone up in value? It's the access to those public goods. So London's real value is actually everyone's value has gone up. The value of public goods has gone up, and we've privatized that value. Now, why that's interesting is historically we've imagined the world through a notion of property rights. When we start to think of the world through a more linked notion of value, and linked value in a way that we've never been able to imagine before, not because it, we didn't know that was true, because we couldn't account for it, or the cost of accounting for it was virtually impossible. How do we start to imagine new possibilities? When we unbundle property rights, when we have differential taxation on speculative value of land, when we link the value of that land to the local school, how do we, and we used to do that, covenants, linked, uh, uh, property rights to actually a church and the rehabilitation of churches. So we historically had means of doing this stuff. Now technology allows us to actually accelerate this idea of a system and system value, recognizing it beyond the object. And this starts to change the notion of perhaps even planning and actually zonal planning to the notion of how we license use in the city and the whole notion of that, that story, and we can get into some of the details around that. But also it allows us to think of things differently. So Ed, uh, Incredible Edible is an incredible, brilliant, incredibly brilliant project in Todd Morden. And I, I love this because I sort of, I know, we know the founders since about 2011 when we wrote the Compendium for the Civic Economy. And why this is a beautiful project is they literally took over public land and started to put cabbages, carrots, everything you can name, <coughs> onions, and started to actually grow stuff. People came out, they farmed it together, and they, they, they started to cook stuff together. But the beautiful thing was, actually, as a result of it, loneliness, depression rates went down in the town. Actually, uh, uh, occupancy rates, or sort of failed occupancy rates, went up on the high street. Actually, the number of, uh, number of jobs went up. A whole bunch of social effects were massively improved. And 
for anyone that knows kind of social, social theory would say, yes, that's bridging social capital, Indy. That's what we did. By, by introducing bridging social capital, it had all those positive effects of improved labor markets. It's like, yes, that's quite right. But I don't know any economic development person who goes, hey, dudes, let's plant some cabbages. What they all do is, let's have a startup fund. Because actually, what we start to think about the city fundamentally in a different way, what's beautiful is they've been able to understand those effects. And now we can talk about more oblique ways of investing, which aren't about the direct capitalization of value to individual people, but actually genuinely social value, societal value. So in that sort of world, what does a 21st century city look like? And I, I suppose that's the sort of world that we have to start to imagine for what are we conserving when we conserve, say, a building must look like the London brick. We were having this conversation in our studio today where someone's like, oh, you know, we've got a, there's a conservation area and it has to be a London brick. Well, are you conserving the look? Are you conserving the local economy and actually the idea of local production? What are we choosing to conserve? Is it the aesthetic? Or actually, are we choosing to advance a local economic multiplier? As David rightly said, whose future is in, is in this story? So when we look at the brilliant uh, AI system of Alexei, you can see an ethnography of an autonomy of it, which is massive. How do we start to think about that world? Whose future? Where's the power in that future? And then some. I would probably like to end uh, on the spirit of some better and greater architects and thinkers than me with some questions. In a world where we have massive interdependency, what does freedom really mean? In a moment when Britain sort of struggles with the word Brexit or challenge of the Brexit, and we work for the illusion of sovereignty, what is sovereignty in an interdependent world? What is sovereignty for me in an interdependent reality? What is justice? What is justice, simple word, when actually the effects of inequality are conditional, are historic? What does it mean? What, is, what does that drive? And then perhaps even more difficult, what is privacy in an interdependent world? And I suppose the reason why I bring these up is I think if we have to reimagine the city of the future, I think we're going to reimagine these core foundations of how we've thought about these words and reimagine them fit for, for a different reality. So I suppose, in thesis, I would like to put forward that actually there's a new contract possible, both technologically, as well as culturally, as well as societally, and thereby a new city. But it sits on the preface of actually reimagining us as being human. And the reason why I say this is every one of you here and everyone that you've ever met today is more extraordinary than any general artificial intelligence that's ever been made or is likely to be made for the next 40 years, right? Do we genuinely unleash the full capacity of every human we've ever met? Have we genuinely found a way to unleash and support that full capacity? Or have we been treating them like bad robots, as sub-particles of our own thinking? Have we found that capacity to unleash? And suppose, in that thesis, I think if we're going to imagine the new city, I think we have to look up in the stars. 
And this quote is not mine, it is interstellar. So I end on, on a quote from the, a brilliant film, in my view. Because I think the greatest challenge we face is if we think of the future as a net zero-sum game. It is a definitive idea. In, in an idea where the future is only a little bit more, a little bit less than now, all we will argue about is well, what's yours and what's mine. How do we actually create the possibility of the infinite possibility of the future and reconcile that with the kind of conversation of let's actually wander for our place in the stars? Because I think the infinite possibility and the infinite possibility every human and unlocking that full capacity of 8 point whatever million people that live in London is actually what the obligation of a new city is. I think the invisible landscapes are almost there to actually unlock that possibility in a really deep, deeply sustainable way. And I think that, to me, is a massive opportunity. So uh, with that, I would like to say one thing, which is actually I stand on the shoulders of many, many brilliant people and uh, Zero Zero Studio and everyone else. Um, so I would like to say a thank you with, with everyone else in mind. So thank you. Wow, well, thank you uh, both for that, uh, uh, for this discussion so far. There's, there's a lot there. Um, and I think there's a lot of resonance between what you're both discussing as well, um, even though I, I, I quite like the fact that you're sort of discussing them in different keys uh, in some ways. Um, I mean, one of the things that I was struck by um, is that you were both, you were both talking about models of, of what it is to be human. Kate, you were talking about um, the legacy of, of sort of homo economicus and the idea of the, the sort of rational man. Um, and Indy, you were talking about the, the, this sort of long history for, from Vitruvian man to modular man to yeah. something else that, that, that you didn't quite name. Um, I was wondering if we can start just sort of picking up on this. I mean, do we need a new model of what it is to be human? Do we need to jettison humanism as an ideal? I mean, how, how, how do you think we should we sort of approach this, this question of being human? Feel free, whoever wants to <laughs> take I think we'll that. We'll just let the question hang. Yeah. So I brought him here. Yeah. Oh, there he is. He's very attention-grabbing. He demanded to come on stage, so I, I, I carry him around, a little rational economic man. Um, yeah, I, so always thinking from an economic point of view, just because I'm so determined that this get rewritten, um, surely what it is to be human is to start off with a relationship, right? That is the, our fundamental, and, and it's so nice expressed in the exhibit upstairs, right? We are fundamentally relational. Um, we, we begin to understand ourselves in relation to others, and that happens first in the household, in that fam familial relationship, but, but the many different ways in which we manage to relate to others. And I find the, the research that's going on um, by people like Herb Gintis and Sam Bowles talking about our conditional reciprocity, that we actually, if you observe how humans behave rather than weirdly model how you think it might be useful to model them so you can make a mathematical equation out of them, we are conditional reciprocator, so I'll collaborate with you so long as you keep collaborating with me. But if you, if you defect, if you, or if you, you, know, if you trick me, 
I will actually punish you to the extent it might hurt myself. I'm so, I'm so determined for that social value to shine through that I will take a hit on my own immediate interest in, in the interest of telling you that wasn't okay. Yeah. So we're deeply social. So I think who we see ourselves we are, there always has to be at least two beings in the picture, that, that relation of humans can come through first. So that, that's why I replaced the rational economic man with the we, the me and the we. Um, which, and the me never goes away. And sometimes actually I show that picture of the we and some people say, oh, hang on, hang on, I feel like that the individual me has got lost. Mm. And I really like the way you said that the, 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 the me was so great, such a brilliant model for 300 years. And we need to find a new way of not losing yeah. individuality within the we, but certainly reimagining it in, in, in a, a new way. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think the kind of invitation for me is that I think the discourse, the cultural discourse is way in advance of policy and way in advance of anything else. I mean, the kind of, the complete fallacy of kind of, I think the UK printed like um, wage inequality, uh, gender wage inequality, and it looked like, a, I think it was 150 years, it had come to zero. It was like, really? And, and so when we look at the kind of reality of the world, and at the same time, what we look at the kind of quasi-social contract we've been operating under, i.e. we're all equal, it's like, well, meh, not so. And I think that we've got a greater transparency around that, whether, whether it's that or whether it's the Black Lives Matter movements. And what we're seeing is, you know, the, the brilliant research by uh, um, Professor um, David Williams, which looked at, you know, black Americans dying 10 years in advance of their peers, and it was to do with the microviolence of everyday racism. Uh, equally educated, equally literally driving persistent levels of cortisone into the bloodstream, which meant high levels of uh, risk of obesity, risk of actually heart disease and many other factors. So we know actually this, increasingly we know that the impacts of conditions and micro-violence micro and micro-aggressions have material biological impacts to the point where they literally are killing people. I mean, like killing people. Like, to, to, if I said to this room, right, I'm going to take 10 years of your life, you'd know about it. You know, you'd make a fuss about it. I think we are in that moment where the science and the conversation of science on this, I would say the first part of the conversation is we need a new generation of civil rights movements, actually, which are deeply challenging what, what we think uh, and how we think. I think policies are way behind that conversation. It's still starting to catch up with very antiquated notions of sort of poverty and kind of uh, fulfillment. I think there are some progressive conversations going on, like universal basic income and other things, which are starting to challenge, well, how do you unleash everyone? We know that financial optimization, nobody works to the notion of actually getting 2,000 pounds or 2,500 pounds more. Or they work to the notion of social recognition and social reward and other things. And actually, if you optimize people with money, which leader here has ever optimized people with more pay? Really? It's a low-grade idea of optimization. So. I think our notion of how we incentivize and create, create things is very low grade compared to actually the sophistication of the, you know, it's built on optimizing that, usually by a CFO, um, as opposed to actually the leadership required to be able to uh, unleash the full capacity. So I think there is some structural stuff, but I think we are deeply out of kilter. The science is deeply, deeply more advanced right now than policy and our infrastructure. And I think that is now, that chism is now more visible than it's ever been. And that's why I think we are getting the movements that we're getting in that conversation. 
That just to pick up on that, I, I think that's that's a really important point. That um, you know, it's we're not talking about only the sort of limitations of concepts and categories, but real concrete social struggles and and political struggles. I mean, I think there's in the invisible landscape there are invisible structures that are keeping things the way they are, and it's not just our our sort of dedication to um, a, a simplistic way of thinking about complexity or, or whatnot. I mean, what, 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 what concrete political movements and, and uh, sort of mobilizations do you think we need to see in order to change cities and societies the way that you would like to see them change? I mean, you've already mentioned Black Lives Matter and, and, um, and similar movements. I mean, can we talk a bit more about the, the sort of concrete political action that that would be necessary. So there's two political actions which I, I'd love Kate's view on as well, actually, more importantly. Um, one is I think there's a conversation right now going on in, uh, in America about putting humans on the balance sheet of an organization. Now, it strikes as a kind of, un it's a very deeply political act in a sense that currently humans are an overhead in a corporate sense. They sit as an ov overhead on the, on the corporate balance sheet. When you understand humans as not a cost, but actually as a source of value, which is where we are in the 21st century society in terms of human life. I think there's something about reframing accounting and reframing the, how we account for the world. And we account for the world from a very uh, labor industrial sense point of view and a capital industrial sense point of view. And I think reimagining the institutions of accounting, I think are going to be one of the most deeply political acts of the 21st century. And when they happen, they will cascade all the way through. So our state doesn't account for future social costs. So the cost of actually somebody going to prison is not really accounted for as a long-term cost. But if we were to understand that as a long-term cost, we would fundamentally invest in prevention in a way that we never do. The reason we don't have a preventative investment model is not because we don't know it. The science of it is there. I think the deep failure is actually a failure in accounting. And I think those are the radical sort of boring politics that are, I think, the center of unleashing tomorrow. Um, and that, to me, those are two simple examples that I think would be profound in terms of how we genuinely make our cities. Uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of people, there are a lot of movements mobilizing today to make things count and, and countable. Um, I mean, precisely as you say, um, in order to, to figure into our public understanding and public accounting of these things. But so what, what's, your, what's your take on this? So yes, accounting, and of course this is The Economist's great project, how do we measure things? I agree that we need to account, and in fact, if you look at the donut, it is in a way yeah. a new kind of accounting for human prosperity. Um, so in the, in, the, in the politics of accounting, what I see has been going on, and I don't know about this move to put humans on the balance sheet, but, but similar, another way it might be similarly framed is companies should look at their, their contribution or their, their natural capital, their social capital, their human capital. So then the question is, what is the metric of this accounting? And what, I, what concerns me and I see going on in many economic spaces is the completion of the 20th century project. So back in the 1930s, Simon Kuznets, a brilliant US economist, was asked to come up with a single number for the, to measure the output of the American economy. He did, and it's what we now call GDP. And he was the first to say, well, well this could scarcely be taken as the welfare of a nation. It doesn't count the unpaid caring work of parents. It doesn't count the value of the community. It doesn't count the natural resources that are run down in the name of generating this output. 
So one could, if you were to take those critiques from the man himself seriously, you'd say, well, what we need to do is bring them into the accounts. The danger is, and I see it happening in, say, natural capital accounting movements, is we're perfecting the 20th century project of monetizing everything. Mm -hmm. So the metric is money, and if we could only bring everything into the calculation, we'll have a full set of accounts, and then we will be able to do monetary calculations on everything. Which, of course, it depoliticizes decisions because it turns into a monetary calculation and who gets determined the... the the net discount rate and the trade-offs and the cost benefits, it's deeply political but depoliticized. What I really love in, in your exhibition and in some of the slides you're showing here, I think it was the brick and we were seeing the value, the, the, the duration of the brick and the, the metrics that were coming off the, the buildings, they're not monetary metrics. They're measuring life in its own metrics and which is exactly what the donut does. It measures human well-being in the metrics of the human body how much education or health, or access to essentials and nutrition, but also it measures life in the metrics of the planet, the functioning of ecosystems, the state of the atmosphere, and it doesn't try to monetize. Yeah. And for me, one of the great opportunities of technology and big data is that we don't have to, to yeah, fit everything into this one number. We can let go of the 20th century yeah, project exactly. and have actually a 21st century richness that was never possible before. And if Simon Kuznets were alive today, he would say, stop. Stop simplifying everything in this one number. Look what opportunity you have. Let's create a rich metrics of accounting, but keep them, keep them in the natural state of the, of the planetary body or the human body or the social body, their own metrics. Let's account for life in its own terms, not monetizing things. And so to me, that's a really important direction that this accounting project must take. I, I, I definitely agree with this, but I, I, I wonder if, if we don't maybe need to sort of aim a bit broader. I mean, it, you know, that all of these um, concepts of the commons and of the relationality of, of people and the embeddedness of economies, um, you know, there, there are reasons that the world sort of isn't organized in a way to take this into account. I mean, neoliberal capitalism has been aiming precisely at privatizing the commons, at uh, appropriating resources for, for private profit and not the public good. Um, there's there's been a sort of concerted, decades-long, global-scale political project to negate the commons, to negate sharing, and to try to disembed the economy from social life and, and from the planet. So, I mean, how can we how can we sort of face this as a as, as a challenge? Do you think? I mean, I think there's multiple ways, but for me, I think that conversation about how you reframe the value of the house. The notion that everyone's property in London has gone up in value has nothing to do with my property. It's to do with the collective goods of London have gone up in value. And yet we all feel legitimized to be able to own that future value, whereas actually it should belong to all Londoners. And I think unless we can re-unbundle that notion of value and relink it back to how it's constructed and build a new social narrative, around that, that actually your house hasn't gone up in value. It's common goods that have gone up in value. And you are the artificial recipient of those common goods because of the way we constructed private property in the 21st century. And it's a synthetic construct. And reimagining that for a different world, I think is plausible, but I think we have to start to build. That's a complex project. But I think firstly, it's just, how do you have that conversation? How do you start to reframe what we think is ours to what is you know, not ours as individually, but ours collectively. And there's a lovely piece of perfor political performance art actually was created in 1918 by a man called Faye Lewis in Rockford, Illinois, 
who had read Henry George, who yeah. talks about exactly. the, you know, the value the of the land lies in the in, in what the community contribute to it. So what Faye Lewis did, and I think he, he should have, you know, his art should be yeah. recognized as political performance art of the, of the early 20th century. He bought a, a plot of land in his town and he did absolutely nothing to it. It was derelict in the middle of the city. The only thing he did was erect a giant billboard on it and he put on it this giant poster that said, I paid $3,600 for this land. I will hold it and sell it when it's worth 6,000. The increment, I have, I'll have done nothing to earn this increment. It will be unearned increment due only to the value created by the community around. For the remedy, read Henry George. And it was just this wonderful piece that was, yeah. you know, he was saying the exactly as you just said, there's a difference between the value of the house and the bricks and whatever I erect on the land and the underlying value, which is, which is communal. So for me, the act... And I love the fact you had a pencil there. That it does take a civilization to make a pencil, but oh, a, a pencil is a mighty thing, because we can redraw the invisible landscapes in our mind. Yeah. And at the heart of my book is to redraw the fundamental diagrams. So when I draw the economy with the household, the market, the state, and the commons together, then we look at a, a building. You realize that some of the value of that comes from the household, how it's occupied Absolutely. and lived in and loved Absolutely. and brought to life. What part of it is due to the state, perhaps the regulations that require it to actually be worthy. What, what a part of it comes from the market, but what part of it comes from the commons? And actually even a humble building has its foot in all four of those quadrants and they all contribute. And we begin to get a much richer notion of the multiple forms of value and, and the, the beautiful layers that you showed in that, in that segmented picture. And, and, and this is the kind of, it's a political question, but just open it up. Yeah, like, so our intuition is that there is a moment in time where we could effectively take the value of the house and start to attribute it, like I said, about covenants and other things. You can create a new class of property rights and linked value, yes. which is still quasi-financial, right? So we're using finance as a, as a quasi-indicator of that. But you can suddenly start to have a more clearer representation, a closer representation of how value is constructed in the act of whether it's a title deed or whether it's act of actually how value is transferred. It, it, it's a step forward, but it's perhaps not the big philosophical jump that you're inviting us to make, which is actually a multidimensionality of value in itself. We know that money is an act of reduction and the act of reduction of information. So, you know, if, if I buy a piece of wood, actually that's allowed for a massive ecological system to be actually eroded on a market commodity value with no recognition of the complexity and the richness of the ecosystem. So in the act of that, how do we synthesize across those two? Because in a way, we're, there's, a, there's a simple first step possible, but I'm, I'm kind of imagining what's the second and third step after that? And I'd be love to sort of see how you're starting to see the world come together in that, in that sense. I think actually the, the visualizations that you've got in your yeah. film upstairs, where you're layering on uh, the invisible values yeah. in different natures of metrics, the first step is to make them visible. visible to our minds, literally visible on the screen, but then that they become visible to our minds and we can begin to think of a building in terms of its ecological value. Is it part of a regenerative design? Yeah, is that building actually helping to cleanse the air? Is it capturing storm water? Does it house biodiversity? So I would bring in Janine Benyus and say, tell yeah. us the metrics of that. The ecological metrics that these buildings should be matching or exceeding. And what would it look like to layer them into and make them visible? There's a town um, in uh, Ohio where they've got 
uh, ecological dashboards put throughout the town. It's called Oberlin. Yeah. They've put them throughout the town in the schools, and they can see how they are performing in terms of the oxygen in the creek and the use of energy and use of clean energy. And so it's making it actually part of metrics that we can see visible, not just prices on things in shop. That's the metric yeah. we see all the time, but other numbers that signify other things. So it's a dashboard. And sometimes people say, oh, dashboard's too complex. Yeah. You know, we need one number. Come on. Yeah. No, no government actually runs a government by one number. All governments care about the interest rate and the inflation rate and the unemployment rate and the trade deficit. And nobody would be willing to drive a car that had just one dial. They said, well, we've mixed in sort of, you know, petrol and temperature and speed and braking. I mean, you know, just, it's easier, right? One number, no way. I want to see them separately. We use a dashboard. We're precisely, as you said, we are more capable than any AI. We're brilliant. We can see a dashboard and adjust. So give ourselves richer dashboards by which to manage our planetary home. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's a really important point. I mean, I, dashboards are, are actually everywhere these days, and I actually think they're quite, um, they're, they're sort of double-edged swords. I mean, it, everything depends, as you say, and who designs the dashboard, who, who decides the metrics that will be there. Um, but I mean, I think one of the things that you're both speaking about is the, the sort of art of visualization um, and sort of learning how to visualize better and um, sort of using that as a tool to, to, to think about political and, and social and urban problems. I mean, what, what, what are some of these other skills that you think people can get better at? Visualization seems to be one thing. It seems like maintenance is something that you both emphasize as well, being able to sort of maintain rather than just, um, rather than just sort of buy new things. I mean, what, 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 are the, what are the sort of skills you think that we should, we should foster in 21st century urbanites? Well, I think, uh, for me, uh, coming to understand systems thinking was when I read Donella Meadows' book, Thinking in Systems, it was a great moment of ex great excitement and revelation that, of how I could understand the principles of dynamic systems and great anger that I'd been taught an economic mindset that actually was based on equilibrium and, and, and pushed dynamics out. Um, so I think being able to see the patterns of dynamics, and I can explain the fundamentals of complex systems, there's two feedback loops that are in play in all fascinating systems, including our own lives, our family dynamics, in the flock of birds flying, in our ecosystem of, of a, a river, or a financial system, which is a, a natural system because it's run by humans and their interaction. There's always a reinforcing feedback loop which is the more you have, the more you get. So the more chickens you have, the more eggs you get, and the more eggs you have, the more chickens you get. And anything in life that spirals up, like tit-for-tat fight in the playground, or spirals down like low health, low income, low health, low income, that's reinforcing feedback. And most of those things don't survive because they either explode or implode. And then what keeps things persisting through time is the balancing feedback. So the more you have, the less you get back. And our bodies are brilliant at this. That's why we are all almost the same temperature in the room. If we get hot, we sweat to cool down. If we get cold, we shiver to warm up. And our bodies are full of this balancing feedback. And for me, a great um, eye-opener, a new way of seeing the world, was to start looking at the dynamics of systems, whether it's your family behavior, whether it's stock market, whether it's an ecosystem thinking, what's dominating here? What's the reinforcing feedback? And what are the good ones? So, you know, the broken window theory, a broken window in a neighborhood and that neighborhood can spiral down, or the loss of trust in a neighborhood. 
planting cabbages. Who would have thought that that could be a brilliant way to kick off a, a reinforcing balancing, a reinforcing feedback of connection and community and, and um, love of neighbourhood? So looking for those and asking yourselves, how can I strengthen the desirable reinforcing feedbacks? How can I weaken the, the negative ones? How can you break in and stop them? How can you build in balancing feedbacks so that things persist and stabilize themselves? For me, that's a really 21st century lens to look at the world through and see the dynamics and love the crazy complexity of it. So learning systems thinking. Yes, yes. Building very clearly on that, I think, uh, for me, I think the question, I mean, maybe I'm not sure it's a skill, but the question for me is how we reimagine the institutional landscape that we built around us. I think our institutions, whether it's even something as simple as the private limited company, the private limited company was a concept designed for the age of perceived infiniteness and the isolation, the creation of in vitro analysis to isolate things. And I think we are so deeply surrounded by the constructs of that worldview, whether it's in language, our use of nouns, our overuse of nouns, our objectification, whether it's language or visual, everything around us is, is actually persistently creating a worldview. And I think the, the design problem project is actually challenging at the persistent level, whether it is language or institutions, all the boring stuff, because I think it's self-reinforcing. We have a self-reinforcing system in, into our institutional matter. And I think there are technologies and things in play which are profoundly challenging that. So, and I don't want to bring the B word in, but I will do, which is kind of like blockchain, stuff like that. Um, <laughs> it's, Damn, I shouldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, but, the, but the reason to bring it in is perhaps it's perhaps one of the interesting things as the internet in its kind of heyday was, was a, was a possibility of talking about a synthetic commons and seeing it as a kind of a new class of synthetic organization at a common level where it can't be individually divided into individual, individual perspectives. So there is a new mindset coming, and I think the challenge is not to look for closed systems, uh, which is actually our model of thinking, but to look for open, unbounded systems. And if we're going to solve 21st century problems, we're going to have to work in an unbounded way, and an unbounded way which has open, open, uh, open fridge. And then, for me, and I'll end straight back, there are deep questions, like, like freedom. What is freedom in a systems reality? And I think unless we start to ask those political questions of what is freedom, what is privacy in the age of interdependency, what is justice I, in, the, in this age, I think we will fail to unlock this possibility. So I think the design challenges are almost at those political levels and re-embracing it. Um, and you know, one is a brilliant um, person who's been doing a lot of research into what's been going on with Cambridge Analytics and other things and who wrote you know, we are in a post-privacy landscape. We think we have privacy, but we don't. And how does this democracy persist in a post-privacy landscape? And I think we're in that world where we're not yet creating or imagining the right, even the design questions. I think the designs are that fundamental, and I think that's where we should be imagining. I definitely want us to talk about what freedom and privacy and democracy mean. But um, yeah. speaking of open systems, <laughs> why don't we open up this discussion to the audience a bit. Um, does anyone have, I can barely see you, but does anyone have any questions that you want to, uh, or, or comments, you don't have to disguise a comment as a question, you can just make a comment. Um, does, does anyone want to, to or, or critiques, does anyone want to jump in on, on, on any of this? 
Yeah. You spoke a lot about different types of value. Um, I was just wondering, in a place like London, where such a, an emphasis is placed on historical value, what place does that have in this conversation? You know, memory, associations of place, um, monuments, that sort of thing. Is that a detriment um, going forward? Will that, you know, especially with competing histories and people place different emphasis on different histories? Or um, can that actually be part of this future city? Either of you want to take that? It's a good question. Um, I, I, th I think, in a way, um, yes, obviously memory has value. Memory has kind of, in a, in a kind of bizarre sense, I think the, the real challenge has been the kind of um, the love with transparency and how we see the city in an age of radical transparency has almost ignored the notion of memory. So the reason why we, you know, there's a, um, we kind of almost design buildings to the fact that we have no memory. Uh, we have no persistent notion of memory and persistent notion of discovery. And I think there's some really profound questions going on in that. I also think that, I would argue the challenge is also how we, um, for me, I think I'll go the other way. And I suppose that's where I'm at. I think in 1968, uh, when, um, you know, Captain Uhura, uh, Captain Kirk kissed kiss Uhura, uh, that was the first interracial kiss on American TV. And that was six months after um, uh, Martin Luther King had been assassinated. So how we imagine radical futures is, I think, a bigger challenge for us right now. I think our ability to imagine futures in a really disruptive sense is, I think, where we're deeply much more constrained. I think the future has become narrowed to the point and limited to the point of actually being a little bit more or less than now. And I think the deep colonization of the economic model is actually it's colonized and consumed actually our imagination of the future. And I think if we're going to unlock a different possibility, I would say we need great amounts of science fiction uh, and great amounts of decolonized science fiction into that future, which challenges perceptions of how value, challenges perceptions of rights, uh, all those sort of things put on the table in different ways. So I would argue that the deep crisis is not, deep crisis is not our history. The deep crisis that's been removed off the table is our ability to imagine futures. And I think that's the limitation that we're really struggling with. Can I have one comment yeah. separately, but on this idea of things carrying memory and is there a value in that? I love going to car boot sales. I furnish most of my house from car boot sales because when you, it's, it's a market, but it's a market populated by people with objects that have memories. And when you buy something from someone on a car boot, they say, oh, this, this actually belonged to my grandmother or, oh, my kids loved playing with this. And I love that it comes with that memory. And when I look at some of the projects that are going on in the circular economy space, like the London Waste and Recycling Board, I've been watching on Twitter, have recently moved their offices and they've done it in a circular way. And they were kept tweeting, we've got these old floorboards from this place and we've got these old lamps from that place. And these, there's something about the circular economy and the use and reuse of materials that people take delight in the memory of what those objects have been. And again, I like in the video, the, the film upstairs, uh, the idea of building spaces that could be houses, but then they could be popped back up as workspaces, but they come back as something else. And I'm sure people would take delight in holding the memory of what they had been. We like layering history. We, we, we like carrying the story of our families. And I think when living spaces or, or workspaces carry the memory of what they have been, we take delight in that. And, and the yeah. circular economy invites more of that. Do we have time for a few more questions? Are we? Yeah. yeah. Great. Uh, 
Yeah, why, why, why don't we take, take a few and then and yeah. sort of answer them as... Oh, yeah. Um, I'm an artificial intelligence guy. That's what I do. And um, I wanted to know what you thought about the negative sides of technology. For instance, I think that a lot of AI is built on simplifying measures of people that are very much based on homoeconomicus economicus type models. I think that although we see rising uh, no privacy, we also have greater anonymity with some negative effects. Uh, although we're seeing more distrib distributed uh, systems that kind of act in our lives, we have echo chambers and, and places where people only talk very hateful things to one another and are excluding other people. So I, I wanted to hear what you thought about the, the kind of downsides of some of the aspects that you've talked about, but the role of technology within those aspects. Great, so downsides of technology. Does anyone else want to add another? Yeah, oh, great. Um, hi. So this seems like an argument uh, about growth versus care, and that these old systems, like Home Economicus or the accounting systems, haven't taken into account things like care or valued care. Um, there also seems to be a huge paradigm shift that's required for us all to get there, to the point where we need to to you know, start to value care in that way. What can everyone in this room do from today, from now, uh, to push forward to, to, to make that paradigm shift? Great, so is, is there, any, okay, one more question here. We, this is, we can talk about these two questions for hours anyway, but. Mine, <laughs> oh, sorry, mine isn't um, a question, it's just an observation that I was quite struck by. Um, Indy's got a Sikh gadal on his wrist, which is a circular symbol of Sikhism and around life, and your pipe, the way you joined it round into a circle. And actually, we talk about new, 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 but a lot of this stuff's old <laughs> in terms of wisdom. Um, and I think it's people waking up or getting back into being intuitive again to what often is common sense and not intellectualised stuff that excludes loads of people. Um, so that's just what I struck by. I'm a psychologist, by the way, so I found it very fascinating. Great. So we, we've got the, the downsides of technology, um, the importance of care and trying to understand the, the, the role of care, and um, the cyclical nature of many of these things. Um, Ta um, take your pick, or all three. I love your question about technology. I think that uh, your apps, I mean, there's so many that we could just spend the whole evening talking about them. Um, obviously, whether it's endorphin releases from actually how we use Facebook, which is actually shortening our, our psychological feedback cycles, our, our thinking cycles, how we almost react, react highly reactive short-term species. So you could say it's reinforcing a very small part of our brain and it's actually making us a different type of human as a result of it. So technology is not this isolated thing, so there's that going on. Then whether it's AI used, uh, or sort of machine learning algorithms used to make decisions about society, whether it's about prisoners and reoffending uh, risks, actually there's massive institutionalized bedding of those, of those things. I think the risks are all there, and then the other big risk is obviously whether we use technology as a framework of control or whether we use technology as a framework of ennobling. And, and I think there is a different perspective here. So I think the risk is that we use technology or, say, smart algorithms to say you cannot travel more than 30 miles an hour 
or whether we use technology to say, actually, how do we allow you to be conscious of your impacts? And these are the same type of technologies, but actually one is about perceptions of an extension of a control agenda versus an extension of something that makes us more human. And these are design choices, societal choices of how we choose to partake in that future. So I would say, yes, all those risks exist. I think the conscious decision is how whether we extend the industrial mindset of control through this technology or whether we perceive a different form of value. And I think technology is allowing us to have that discourse. And I think that is going to be one of the big political discourses that we need to have. And currently, I think it's been constructed from a mindset of control rather than a mindset of enablement, which, you know, for example, the great example is judges in America. You could either tell a judge to say, this is what the reoffending rate, reoffending time cycle should be, or sort of a bail should be, or you can say, your decision is here on the spectrum of this decision. And it allows people to become conscious of the behaviors that they're exhibiting. And you can empower people to be ennobled. So technology can place that an agent of ennobling versus that agent of, um, agent of control. I, just to pick up your point about this is old, yes it is. Uh, the thing that I think is profound is that actually we might be able to do this at a global civilization level, right? That is extraordinary. So suddenly we could take something we could do at the scale of a village and we might be able to extend that mindset at the, at the scale of a civilization at a global level. And that is a, a relationship, I don't know, a way of being that could be extraordinary. So yes, I agree, the philosophy is old, and that may be possible as a result of how technology allows us to become conscious of not only me, but actually my, I am simultaneously local but global, literally. And I think that is a profoundly interesting perspective. Um, I think your care point, I can't remember. The question. What can we the, all do? The, the ethic of care. What, what, what can we do to, to foster care and how should we think about care? Yeah, I, I, so what's a practical thing? I would love to see a boring thing, which is I would like to reimagine the HR contract, like an employment contract for the 21st century, which isn't about treating people as labor, but treating actually being a, an idea of how you empower people. Simple, crystallized things like employment contracts for the 21st century, where we recognize emotional labor is actually so, like, if you work on the service and you say, hi, how are you? What coffee would you like? You do that every hour of the day, that's emotionally exhausting. And we invite people to be emotionally exhausted. How do we reimagine those things that are actually not about control, not about time, but actually recognizing the care people put into the work. So I think there's, for me, it's always looking back at the institutional infrastructure of these things. And when we start to reimagine them for the 21st century, we will create new ideas of labor, reimagining the notions of labor, reimagining the notion of civic rights and citizen consumer rights for the 21st century, which isn't purely about consumption, but is a whole new notion of power in there. So I, I suppose my intuition is always to go back there right now, at this moment in time. Right. So um, on the technology, I feel, as many people, technology can be neutral. It's how it's designed. It's how it's purposed. And so I always ask, who is designing this technology and, and what is the driving purpose? And it often falls into, is it driven by the 20th century private company that's actually driven by financial purpose. We designed this technology in order to maximize a financial return to a certain set of people, and that's and then all the fallout from the way the technology runs falls on others. Or is the technology being designed driven by the community that's actually using and shaped by it, driven by their needs? And you see that there's a wonderful community called Chebet Online in Amsterdam that 
instead of using Facebook to create a community page, they created their own local network, which is a cooperative. It's owned, it's, it's based on open source um, platform co-op. And the community come together and keep redesigning the tool that they're using for their own needs. And so it's totally not finance driven, it's community design driven. So for me, any technology, I always ask who's controlling it and what purpose have they put behind it? And is it a financial one or actually a life-giving one and a community-based one? On the question about care, since Indy spoke of the labor space, I'll, I'll speak of the unpaid care and the home. So often people, when I'm talking about the donut economics, someone will say, what can we actually do? So I'll often say the first thing to do is go home into your home space, the household, and think about the politics of the household. What is all the unpaid caring work that's going on within your home? And just have an honest conversation about who's doing that work and the history of how that got set that way. And maybe now the kids have grown up, should we rejig that and rebalance that? And often when I, I've often said this, it's sort of genteel literary festivals, at which point lots of, you know, 60-year-old wives look at their husbands <laughs> and nod. Um, but also within the caring space to think moving from that frame of growth, which is the very 20th century frame of this is what progress looks like, to health. Health is balance. So care is about bringing balance in many ways in our lives. And care needs to be recognized, so making it visible, whether it's through a certain metric or, or through describing it, naming it, presenting it. It needs to be recognized we can reduce the burden of care. Uh, when I, my twins were one year old, I had a bike which had two children's bike seats, one in the front and one in the back. And it was, that was my freedom. You talked about freedom. That was my freedom machine. And I deeply understood the relationship between gender and technology. In a way, I'd never understood it when I was writing about it and thinking about it in the abstract. I deeply understood that having that piece of equipment gave me a freedom and actually gave me a joy of being with my kids rather than pushing and carrying the shopping. So there was a piece of technology there that, that reduced the burden of care for me at that moment. But then the third one is redistributing care. So we need society to create laws that redistribute it, for example, not only enabling women to take, so in the US, what is something like six weeks maternity leave and then you're back at work, but actually six months or a year. And also, by the way, it's not just maternity leave, it's parental leave. So you need to create legislation that permits parentally for that care to be redistributed between the parents. And then we need a culture that allows men to actually take that up. I believe I'm sitting next to somebody on parental leave. <laughs> so Tell here we are. Just to spend my evenings, but yes, during the day, I'm on parental leave. A model of taking <laughs> up. So making that culture real and making it, you know, it's not embarrassing to say I took parental leave. It means I'm not committed to my job. Actually, I'm committed to thriving and I'm committed to recognizing that multiple forms of value. And at this moment in my life, my, my contribution to value and health of society is to be at home with my kids. So for me, that's a really important part of recognizing, reducing and redistributing care so that it's shared and we can all enjoy it. Um, and then the last one on, on the circle. So when I first drew the donut diagram, I was completely amazed by the response that it kicked off, the response to people who felt that it permitted new conversations. And immediately just drawing two concentric circles that just some, somehow transformed something. And I started to think about the importance of shape and that led me to thinking about this ever rising line of growth. So, you know, the 20th century shape of progress 21st century shape, I can say with my hands, it's something more like this. It's balance, it's health. And we know in our bodies that's health, right? Enough oxygen, not too much. Enough water, enough food, enough exercise, enough anything but not too much health. And then I started looking at ancient symbols of health and well-being. And guess what? 
There's circles everywhere, right? From the Maori Takarangi, these two wonderfully intertwined spirals. Celtic double spiral, it looks something like this. Uh, the Buddhist endless knot, the Taoist yin yang. Um, I'm unfamiliar with the one you mentioned that, that Indy has the circle. Okay, a circle. Uh, Zen Buddhism circle. There's something very deep. And actually, you realize that deeply cultures have recognized it, sprung up everywhere. Why have cultures that have never met chosen the circle as their symbol of wholeness, wealth, and well being? And why is it therefore actually that Western culture of the last, say, two, three hundred years is the extraordinary exception to that? That said, oh, progress, it looks like this. It's the total exception to a much more widely shared and deeper held wisdom. So, Silly though it is to go around talking about donuts, it's just the shape, it's the concept, and it sits within a much, much richer, deep tradition, and it takes us away from this endless growth to health, which I think is going to be the 21st century metaphorical shift that we make. Does, does anyone else want to, want to weigh in on this? There's, there's a, lot, a lot here that we've been discussing. Um, I'm also getting the signal that there's not actually time for that. So, <laughs> never mind. Um, but, uh, thank you to all of you for coming and uh, listening and participating. And uh, thank you for inviting me as chair. And especially thank you to Indy and Kate uh, for these great talks. So, thank you very thank much. You. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, Feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.